When you hear the third of the Ten Commandments, you know, the one about taking the Lord's name in vain, do you think that's a command about our speech and the casual or irreverent or profane way that we speak God's name, like saying, oh my God, or even, oh my gosh? Well, in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, author and professor of Old Testament at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, Dr. Carmen Imes joins the group to talk about how in that third command, you actually see a bigger idea that appears in the Bible basically from beginning to end, the idea of us bearing God's name. And so that command is actually about more than just how we speak God's name. Yeah, so that's what most people, most Americans are assuming is going on here, that you shouldn't swear, use God's name flippantly. I would say those are still bad things to do. But this command is anything we do that might misrepresent God. So that includes way more than how we say God's name. It includes how we drive, how we talk to our neighbors, how we interact on social media, how we handle our money. There isn't any area of life that's untouched by this command. Yeah, and so be part of a memorable series of conversations about bearing God's name with Carmen Ives on the Discover the Word podcast. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Looking forward to another hour or so of studying the Bible together. This study titled, Bearing God's Name. And at the table are three of your regular study partners, Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry. And joining us from the campus of Biola University and the Talbot School of Theology is author and associate professor of Old Testament, Dr. Carmen Imes. Carmen has written a book called Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. And she's going to lead us in exploring a number of passages that are going to give us a fresh outlook on the Old Testament and the law and what are so often perceived as all the rules and commands and restrictions found in the Bible. So often we feel like those are holding us back. They're limiting our freedom and we view them as negative. But this study Carmen is going to lead the group through about bearing God's name will offer another way of looking at that. We've got a really fun guest leader with us, Dr. Carmen Imes. And, you know, I have so enjoyed processing this topic of bearing God's name. I'm really curious about what that means, Carmen. Anyway, we're so glad you're Mm. with us. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you. So, Russell, what does it do to you when you hear about this? I think that I'm always intrigued by both the aspect of the Imago Dei, and we've been Mm. hearing a lot about that, and I think for important reason in recent time and what does it mean to have the image of God and bear the image of God. But then also this aspect in the law of not having any images and not making images Mm -hmm. of God. So I'm I'm both intrigued and looking forward to learning a lot. We talk a lot about bearing God's image, but Mm -hmm. I don't know that we've spent much time Mm -hmm. talking about what it means to bear God's name. Even that title feels a little Mm -hmm. mysterious to me. And Mm -hmm. other than thinking about like, oh, as a Christian, the word Christ is embedded within that term. Outside of Mm -hmm. that, I haven't really given that concept much thought, or at least I don't think I have. Maybe I have, and I'm going to find out I have. That's good. So So Carmen, take it away and, and lead us into this discovery. 
Yeah, so I thought today we could start with an illustration just to get us in the headspace of what it's like when you're in a situation where you don't know what the rules are and you are expected to be a certain thing or live a certain way and no one's told you. So it's a kind of a guess and check and there can be some anxiety about figuring out what is expected of me. So I know of a card game called Mao that works this way, where if you're a newbie to the game, those who have played the game before refuse to tell you the rules. That's the rule. That's not fair. And so (laughs) the game has one rule, and that is you're supposed to get rid of all your cards first, but you aren't told how to get rid of them. You're just watching other people, and every time you do something wrong, they give you more cards. Which is really frustrating because you would do it right if somebody just told you what it was you were supposed to be doing. But very fun Uh, if you're on the inside, yeah. (laughs) Oh, very fun for the insiders, yes. And I think this is a good illustration as we begin thinking about Old Testament law because the law, I'm convinced, was a gift to ancient Israel. But gift is not usually the first word that comes to mind Mm. when somebody says Old Testament law. If you're playing an association game, that's not the one that Mm. pops into your mind. Mm. And so I think just to put ourselves in a situation where you don't know the rules, but you're expected to keep them can help us appreciate how we might feel if somebody tells us, here's what's expected of you. Here's how to win at this game. (laughs) (laughs) If you're told in advance, then you actually have a chance of participating well. Mm. I'm going to all kinds of things. I'm actually remembering when I first went to seminary and I came out of a a churched background, but it wasn't an intellectual or even hermeneutical background. I didn't know what that word even meant, hermeneutics, or Mm -hmm. I didn't know the books of the Bible in order, I mean, on and on and on. And I felt, besides being one of six women in an entire school of men, I felt like I totally didn't understand the game. And Mm -hmm. I had no idea that I wouldn't understand the game until I was enrolled and sitting in class, as a matter Mm -hmm. of fact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's so many other areas of life that feel like that sometimes too, not just the Mm -hmm. quote unquote game of Christianity, whether it's church culture and trying to figure Mm -hmm. out what's okay and not okay to do in different church settings Mm -hmm. or whatever. But even like in an organization, when you take a job in a new place and you come in and you start pretty much learning the rules of the game because you run up against something where it's like, oh, we don't do that that way here or something like yes. that. And you're like, oh, no, yes. I, I didn't know that. Or or when you get in a meeting and people are talking about something that you have no idea what they're talking about, but everybody yeah. seems to know like the lingo yeah. or whatever. So there's yeah. a lot of places in life that feel that way. I think about the frustration of that game scenario when you're the outsider and everybody knows what's happening Mm-hmm. and can't wait to give you more cards. And I, I think mm-hmm. about how frequently people think that's how God is with his mm-hmm. law and his relationship yes. to, yeah. with us. I can't wait to show you how you've messed up. I can't wait mm-hmm. to show you yeah. how the burden of you know, trying to please me uh, is gonna be something where you just end up with more cards. And mm-hmm. so to hear that the law is a gift is something that I'm really looking forward to hearing more from because it's kind of the opposite of how our culture understands the relationship of 
the Old Testament God to his people and to us. Yeah, yeah. I love that tie-in because I think you're exactly right. And the passage that we're going to read together is right on that topic. It kind of messes with our presumptions about how the law must have felt to ancient people. We often think of it as a ball and chain. Mm -hmm. Or I've heard people say, oh, I'm so glad I'm not an Israelite. Have you seen the list of laws they had to keep? I mean, it just feels like this burden. Mm -hmm. But when Moses describes the law, he does not describe it as a burden. He doesn't kind of apologize for it. He doesn't say, oh, guys, I'm really sorry. I know you thought you were free now that I got you out of Egypt, but actually there's a whole bunch of stuff you have to do. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say it that way. And so I think for us to fully appreciate what's happening with the law, we need to hear it through their ears or walk in their sandals for a while. So we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8 as a kind of entry point into this idea of how did the Israelites feel about the law. Russell, do you want to go ahead and read it for us? Yeah, I got you. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Hmm. I just love this passage. It just jumps out at me because, again, it's not the way we think about the law all these years later as Christians. But Moses does not say, wow, when the other nations hear about this law, they are going to be so glad they're not in Israelite (laughs) because they don't have to do all this stuff. He actually believes they're going to be jealous They're going to look with awe at the Israelites and they're going to be like, wow, what a society, what a nation, what kind of nation is in this kind of position where God speaks to them and tells them exactly what he expects. It reminds me in some very patriotic moments of how we might feel about the Constitution of the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. it truly sets us apart as a nation of freedom. Now, whether or not Mm. we always achieve that, but that's our bright North Star that we hold on to. And and Mm. it is Mm -hmm. a beautiful thing. And I've never thought about it that way as a people of God. Yeah. And I think if we can situate this text, this biblical text in its ancient Near Eastern context, it's really helpful. Because in comparison with other ancient Near Eastern religions, Yahweh's revelation of what he expects is incredibly gracious because the typical way that religion worked in the ancient world was a kind of guess and check system where okay your crops aren't growing so you must have angered the gods Mm. somehow but you're not sure what you did and you're not sure which god you angered and so you have to go through this series of anxiety driven rituals to try to see if you can hit this and it's like hitting a target in the dark you don't know so you try different sacrifices to different gods try different rituals to see if you can satisfy what the gods require of you and in contrast to that Yahweh comes to his people and says here's how to please me here's how I want you to live 
How does that compare with things like the Code of Hammurabi or other mm. ancient law codes, so to speak, where there are like expectations given out, some of which even the Old Testament borrows from at times? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's definitely overlap between the laws, say, of Hammurabi and the laws in the Bible. And just for those who are listening, hello, me, you know, what is the Code of Hammurabi? It's a code of 200 something laws that Hammurabi had inscribed on this stone monument that illustrate the justice of his rule. And most scholars today would suggest that they didn't function necessarily legislatively, like these were not enforced in court, but they were more of a kind of public propaganda to show what a smart administrator Hammurabi was. And there's also a picture or an image that's engraved on the stone that shows him receiving these laws mm-hmm. from the gods, mm-hmm. uh, in his case, from the god Shamash. And so he's expressing the law as a way of saying, look at what a great society we have. So that's similar Mm -hmm. to what we get at Sinai. But we also have lots of examples of people's anxiety. So the laws in Hammurabi's code are more civil in nature. They're not as religious as the Bible's laws. And so here's an example. Um, This is a prayer that dates to roughly the same time as the Exodus. And it's a prayer from Babylon, and it's called the Prayer to Any God. And I'll just read a little selection of it, because I think Mm. it gives us a sense of what people are feeling when they're praying. He prays, May my Lord's angry heart be reconciled. May the God I do not know be reconciled. May the goddess I do not know be reconciled. May the God, whoever he is, be reconciled. May the goddess, whoever she is, be reconciled. Oh, my Lord, many are my wrongs. Great are my sins. Oh, my God, many are my wrongs. Great are my sins. Oh, my goddess, many (laughs) are my wrongs. Great are my sins. And it goes on and on. And then it says, I do not know what wrong I have done. I do not know what sin I've committed. I do not know what abomination I have perpetrated. I do not know what taboo I have violated. Oh, I just feel the desperation in that, Carmen, of just, I I don't know what the right way to go is. And in contrast, you're saying that God gives his law as a gift to take that burden off of us. Yes, yes. And his law is a gift not in order to get them saved, but in order to help them to see how to live as the people that he's set free. Mm-hmm. That's right, because he's already done the rescuing at this point. And that's the other fascinating thing about yeah. the relationship that you mentioned in the contrast, whereas yeah. these other ancient Near East treaties is like, hey, you do these things and this deity will be on your side, whereas yeah. God of the Bible rescues the people first. Yes, he's already demonstrated he's on their side. They're his people. And so this is how to live that out. Yeah, that is how the law can be seen as a gift rather than a heavy burden to bear. God gave them the law as a way of bearing his name. That's a good start to our study called Just That Bearing God's Name. You're listening to the Discover the Word podcast, and our guest for this episode is Dr. Carmen Imes. Now next, Carmen will help us by showing how a variation on playing tag can help us understand a complicated and difficult theological subject like election. All right, well, we're back talking about bearing God's name, and I wanted to start with 
a childhood memory of playing tag. There's lots of different ways to play tag. <laughs> in my book, I talk about blob tag, but in my actual childhood, we called it something different. So I'm curious if anybody out there has called it this. I have no idea where this comes from, but we played pom pom pull away. All I know is just tag. Yeah. Freeze tag. Oh, freeze tag. I remember freeze tag where you had to freeze. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why it got this name or what that's supposed to mean, but we would line up on either side of the field on the playground. So your goal was to get from one end of the field to the other without being tagged. And so if you're on the side, it's like base, but you're trying to cross over the field. And the people who are it are in the middle running around tagging people. Now, I grew up in Colorado, and the best time of year to play this game was winter when it snowed, because then you could play tackle pom-pom pull away. And I have a very epic memory of tackling a boy in my class. Like I dove at his feet and he went flying over my head. It's the one and only moment of glory (laughs) I've ever had in sports. But anyway, the reason we're talking about this is because as soon as you've tagged someone, they become it with you. And you keep playing until everyone's been tagged. So pretty soon you've got the entire recess. Like every kid who's out at recess is it, except for one kid who's trying to dodge between Mm -hmm. everybody to get to the other side. And sometimes people struggle with the idea of election, with the idea Mm. that God chose Israel as his chosen people, and he didn't choose everybody else. And so this illustration of tag, I think, is a really helpful way to think about God's choosing. Because when you're playing tag and you get tagged, you don't just sit back and say, sweet, I'm it. I've arrived. No, you start running around and tagging other people. Hmm. And I think that this is how election works, that God chooses Israel and their job is to tag other people. And our job as followers of Christ is to tag other people until everyone's been tagged. Hmm. So it's not a status that you kind of rest in. It's a vocation that you endeavor to lean into. And so we're going to see that today in Exodus chapter 19, verses four through six, which is probably my favorite passage of the Bible. And it's Hmm. going to show us how Israel has not just been chosen to be picked just for the sake of being picked, but they've been chosen to do something. And we're going to see what the shape of that is. I can read that. So Exodus 19, starting in verse four. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. I just love this passage because it comes before the law. It comes Before Israel has done anything to deserve God's favor, they were nothing but oppressed slaves. God rescues them. He hears their cries, rescues them, brings them out of this servitude. And then he says this about them. He says, you are my treasured possession. And that word right there, that phrase is my favorite word in Hebrew. It's the word segala. And I love it because as I dug into what does the word segala mean, what does it mean to be a treasured possession, I discovered that it's not just a warm, fuzzy term of endearment, but it's a technical position that somebody would hold if they're in treaty with a great king. So if a king is in treaty with many smaller kingdoms, 
he would choose one of those kingdoms that's his special treaty partner that he can trust especially to represent him if he has to be away on business or something like someone who can come and do the things that he would normally do in that situation, kind of like an ambassador. Mm. And God is saying to Israel, you are my ambassador. You represent me among the nations. Not only did I choose you, but I've chosen you above all nations to have a special role. To me, it reminds me of 1 Peter 2. Peter's writing, you are a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, a people after my own heart. Before you were not a people, now you are a people. This contrast. And Peter's quoting then this. He is. He He's actually, you know, if he was in my class and he turned this in as a term paper, I would have to turn him into the dean's office for plagiarizing because every phrase that he uses in First Peter 2, 9 and 10 is taken from the Old Testament. And it's kind of a mashup mm-hmm. of a bunch of different passages. But what he's doing there is profound because he's taking the titles that God gave to Israel at Sinai. To make them his covenant people. And he's applying those titles to a church made up of Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus. Mm. So that indicates to me that this covenant at Sinai still matters, that we're actually part of it. We've been grafted in, even if we're not Jewish, if we're following Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, we've been grafted into that covenant. And so then we have that job as well of representing God among the nations. So it goes back to some of what you're saying about we bear God's name in that God chooses us to be in relationship with him. And then we are called to attract others to being chosen as well. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And of course, we're in a season that's a little different than ancient Israel's. They were in a season of come and see. They were supposed to live, you know, we talked about the law being a gift. And The law was also a matter of mission because as Israel lived by these laws, it made them a distinct society so that people could look at them and find out what Yahweh was like. Mm. They could see his character Mm. on display. So theirs was a come and see type of mode. And in the New Testament, that switches right after the resurrection of Jesus, he sends his disciples out and it's a go and tell Mm -hmm. mode instead of just to come and see. So this is where tag really works that the tag illustration is definitely more of a go and find people. (laughs) That's not quite what Israel is doing. It's more of a come and see. But I think the, the same principle is at work. God chose the nation of Israel and now he's chosen the Gentiles. And together, as we follow Jesus, we have this vocation, this life work of bringing others into the kingdom of God. Yeah. One thing I was noticing in verse four reads, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how Mm. I bore you on eagle's wings and Mm. brought you to myself. First of all, the Mm. imagery of that is just beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what does the circumstance and the condition of the servitude and oppression in Egypt, how might that inform what their Mm. mission that they're Mm. being called Mm. to is? Such a good question. And I wish we had time to go into all the details. But when you actually slow down and read the laws that God gives them at Sinai, again and again, he underscores this fact that you were slaves in Egypt. Therefore, I want you to live differently. You cannot oppress the foreigner. You cannot oppress the widow and take advantage of the fatherless. And if you do and they cry out to me, then I will hear their cries and I will punish you. So their experience of having been oppressed shapes 
the way they're supposed to treat others. Mm. They're supposed to walk in a different spirit, live in a different way. And that's part of what makes the law such a gift is that it's actually restraining the exploitation of others and making space for human flourishing. And I just think that's beautiful. Yeah. The way you set that up to Rasul with the question just reminds me of how different the circumstances for them are at this point too, because they come out of a situation in which they're told everything they have to do. And if they don't Mm. do those things, then there's, you know, ways that they are tortured or hurt or harmed or Mm -hmm. persecuted, whatever term you want to use for the way that they're treated. And the language here in chapter 19 is so invitational from God of, Mm. I've done this work to rescue you out of that space where you are being forced to work against your own will. And I'm inviting you into this new way of living and existing in the world. Like they went from feeling like as far from a treasured possession as possible Mm -hmm. in Egypt Mm -hmm. to coming out of Egypt and having the God of the universe invite them into relationship with him and just how the contrast of that is pretty amazing. Yeah, it is such a beautiful contrast. And God reminds them repeatedly that it was his rescue of them that is what qualifies him to tell them how to live. Mm -hmm. So he's not just showing up and imposing random stipulations on them. He begins the Ten Commandments by saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, which should frame everything we see when we read the Ten Commandments. This is not a ball and chain. These are the conditions for life in freedom. Yeah. And how many times they respond with, we want to do this, right? Like, yes. Yes. Like, everything <laughs> Yahweh has said we will do. They yeah. sign on very willingly. I also think about the effect of that wisdom of the law. And I think about when the Queen of Sheba mm-hmm. visits Solomon and tests him with hard questions. Yeah. Solomon, who we know is specifically visited by God and given this unique sense of wisdom and understanding. And um, and it's put on display in an international context. But mm-hmm. then I think about the ethical aspects in Acts chapter 2, where as this, as you said, in First Peter, this, this royal nation gets expanded to Jews and Gentiles alike. One of the things that seems to be distinct about their mission is that it's inclusive and that, mm-hmm. you know, you see everybody shares what, what they have with one another. So are there still yeah. some of those elements that you think in terms of what it means to be on mission? When I think of mission, I typically think of just the tag part, but it also seems <laughs> like there's a way in which where being on mission is supposed to influence how we interact with those who we tag. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We are being invited into a beloved community of those who are together following Jesus. Christianity is not a solo sport. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not me and Jesus. It's not me and my prayer closet only. It's becoming part of a family. And we got to learn how to love everyone else in our family, if we're going to really be and do what God has planned for us. Jesus really fulfills this, you know, in his entire lifetime. And I think that's what, you know, Peter rounds the circle for us, you know, in, mm-hmm. in as we keep referencing First Peter, he also in chapter one says, be holy, therefore, yes. as your heavenly father yes. is holy, because he is holy. And then he goes on reminding everybody mm. of who they are, 
a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession or treasure, yes. that yeah. you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful yes. light. So it's, here's who you are representing me in order that you may go <laughs> and help mm-hmm. others mm-hmm. to know who I am. Exactly. And so often Christians imagine that it was the Old Testament where there was a law, but then Jesus gets rid of that. And so the church just, we just experience the grace of God and we don't need to worry about the law. But if you look at any New Testament letter, you see half of it is, here's what's true. And the other half of it is, here's how to live in response to what you know is true. And, and as you said, Elisa, it's be holy for I am holy. So it's working out what does that look like in this cultural context, in this cultural moment. Carmen Imes, our guest here on Discover the Word in this episode, talking about bearing God's name. And uh, so now we know why. Exodus 19 and Segala are a couple of Carmen's favorites. We are God's treasured possession. and That's why the law was given, and it's why Jesus came. And living out that reality is a huge part of bearing God's name. Well, next, Carmen will take us to the Ten Commandments and another place where this idea shows up. And so what does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? Is that about our speech? And a prohibition of casually or irreverently or profanely saying God's name. Well, Carmen thinks we may misunderstand this third command. We're going to look at a very familiar command from the Ten Commandments that I think has often been misunderstood. And I'm going to try to resituate it for you. Yeah, and she will do that right after a short break and a word about Carmen's excellent book on this topic of bearing God's name. Now, as a follow-up to our study in this edition of the Discover the Word podcast, I would recommend that you get a copy of Carmen's excellent book titled Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. In it, she takes her readers back to Mount Sinai and thoughtfully explains why the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, the law, why all that still matters to Christians today. Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters by Dr. Carmen Imes is available for sale online from most book retailers. And you'll also find a link to order your copy if you go right now to our website at discovertheword.org. That link will be there for a limited time and So if you'd like to use it, don't delay. Otherwise, as I said, go to any of the online booksellers and search for Bearing God's Name by Carmen Imes, Carmen, C-A-R-M-E-N, Imes, I-M-E-S. Enter all that into the search line and look for that book and get a copy. And now back to these conversations with Carmen Imes about Bearing God's Name. So my husband and I, started off in the early part of our marriage living in the Philippines for a few years as missionaries. And one of the things that struck us just as we were first arriving is we noticed that there are all these public works projects, things like bus shelters and even bathrooms and streets and sidewalks and anything that you would think, oh, this is a public service project. It would have the name of the government leader painted on it. Wow who sponsored it. And we soon learned that every government official had a color that represented them. And so Mm. there was a leader in Quezon City when we lived there whose color was pink. 
And so everything that he did got painted pink. So he installed male urinals along the side of the roads as a public service. (laughs) And they were all pink because that was his color. And, you know, that was 20 years ago. So now the colors have been recycled. And I hear that there's a new presidential candidate, a female whose color is pink. So I think the color's been recaptured by someone else. But what's fascinating about this is that the government leaders are trying to get credit, public honor for Mm. the work Mm. that they have done. So public recognition of their accomplishments for the public good brings them that honor. They want to affix their name to the things that they're responsible for. Mm. And that way, when the next election rolls around, you remember where you Mm. got that (laughs) new road from or that bus shelter from. And so now you, you want to have them in office longer. And it strikes me that this is a helpful illustration for the concept of bearing God's name, because in the ancient world, deities also affixed their names to things, or people affixed the deities' names to things. So we're going to look at a very familiar command from the Ten Commandments that I think has often been misunderstood. And I'm going to try to resituate it for you. So, Elisa, do you want to start us off by reading Exodus chapter 20, verse 7? And then we're going to read chapter 28, verses 9 to 13, to give some important context for what that command is getting at. Okay, so we're starting with Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So before we read the other passage, it's worth noting that in Hebrew, if I were translating it very woodenly into English, I would say, you shall not bear or carry Mm. the name of Yahweh your God Mm. in vain. So it doesn't actually say misuse in Hebrew. Misuse is our English Bible translator's attempt to make this intelligible because it doesn't immediately makes sense to us in our modern context. What would it mean to bear God's name? Yeah. You shall not bear God's name in vain. What, what does it mean to bear a name? And that's why we need to go to chapter 28, because here in this close context at Sinai, there's some other name bearing going on, and it illustrates for us what's happening in the Ten Commandments. So chapter 28, verses 9 through 13. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the name of the sons of Israel in the order of birth, six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other stone. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree Mm. settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as a memorial stone for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Make gold filigree settings and two braided chains of pure gold like a rope and attach the chains to the settings. All right. So I've just dropped you right in the middle of a part of Exodus that doesn't usually form the basis for our morning devotions. Correct. (laughs) Um, We're right in the tabernacle instructions. These are specific instructions for what Aaron is supposed to wear as Israel's high priest. And so what we heard was the description of the two stones that he wears on his shoulders, which are engraved with names. And I don't know if you caught it partway through that. It said, and so he shall bear the names Mm -hmm. of the sons of Israel. And that phrase, bear the names, is the same phrase as what we had in the command that we read a moment ago. So Israel is not to bear the name of Yahweh in vain, but Aaron is meanwhile bearing the names of the Israelites. In other words, 
in his role as high priest, he's coming in and out of the tabernacle, and he's wearing these special garments that qualify him to represent the Israelites to God. Mm-hmm. If we read on, we find that he is also wearing a gold medallion on his forehead, that it's actually engraved with the name Yahweh, wholly belonging to Yahweh, and he represents Yahweh to the people. So he goes in between the two parties, representing the people to God and God to the people. And he does that by bearing names. Hmm. And I think that this is worth considering because in our previous episode, we were in Exodus 19 verses 4 through 6, where it says that Israel is God's treasured possession, and it also calls them a kingdom of priests. So if they're the kingdom of priests, then perhaps we should look at the priests to find out what is their vocation. And I would argue that the high priest is modeling their vocation as the people who represent God to the nations. Hmm. Okay, this is uh, kind of expanding and stretching my understanding of what it means to not bear the name of the Lord Mm -hmm. in vain, which I always thought had something to do with speaking blasphemously or using the Lord's name in an irreverent way. Is mm-hmm. that a part of it? or? Yeah, yeah. So that's what most people, most Americans are assuming is going yeah. on here, that you shouldn't swear, use God's name flippantly or use God's name to authorize something. I would say those are still bad things to do. We should not do those <laughs> things. But if this was a Venn diagram, the way we speak the name is a inner circle But I think this command covers a much larger field, like the larger circle around that is anything we do that might misrepresent God. So that includes way more than how we say God's name. It includes how we drive, how we talk to our neighbors, Mm. how we interact on social media, how we handle our money. There isn't any area of life that's untouched by this command. So it's more of a a matter of like, you know, in in the day when you have an ichthus on the back of your car and then you cut somebody off in traffic. Exactly. Mm -hmm. If you have put a fish on the back of your car, you've identified yourself as a Christ follower, then the way you drive is going to reflect Christ to people or Christians. People are going to watch the way you drive and they're going to be like, oh, Christians don't keep the speed limit or Christians don't stop at stop signs where they cut people off, right? So if you're going to put a fish on your car, you better drive well, and you better be thoughtful toward those around you. And I think the same is true of us just more broadly, that if we bear God's name, then people are watching us to find out what God is like. And that's why Israel has the law, because they're supposed to live into this vocation of representing God among the nations. So there's kind of two things I think that are colliding in my head as I think about this. One is first just the amazing privilege and honor that God gives them by offering them the opportunity to both bring him honor, but also hurt his reputation, (laughs) right? Like the fact that he allows first Israel and then the whole world, including us, to represent his name in a way that could bring dishonor to God. It's a huge risk. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing that comes to mind for me too is just remembering like growing up and having my mom or dad say something to me before I went somewhere or (laughs) to an event Ah. or something. It was like, just remember, you're not just representing yourself. You're representing the whole family when you go to wherever. And so there was this extra, like within that is the privilege of the fact that I am 
related to my family and I represent mm-hmm. them in the world and there's some responsibility that comes with that. But yep. there was also the heaviness of that responsibility yeah. and the fact Absolutely. that there were some expectations that the way that I would interact in the world would reflect on mm-hmm. more than just myself. Yeah, it is a lot of responsibility. Getting to the, um, like you said, the more expansive vision that this has. Another thing I, I feel like I'm noticing with the way that you're inviting us to kind of explore these texts is that it seems like in our context, we hear a negative command and think of mm. it in a negative way. It's good. Mm. But yeah. the original readers heard it in a much more positive and even affirming way of mm. who their mm-hmm. identity was. Yeah. So can yep. you, could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, this flows right out of what we talked about as their role as God's segala, his treasured possession. He has specially appointed them to this role of representing him. And therefore, it's as if they have an invisible tattoo, that they've been stamped with God's name. And so they then represent God. You you might be familiar with the the high priestly blessing that appears in Numbers chapter 6. May Yahweh bless you and keep you and mm-hmm. make his face shine on you mm-hmm. and be gracious to you. We've, we hear that in church, but we don't often read the part that comes right after it. Verse 27 reads, And so you shall put my name mm-hmm. on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. Mm-hmm. And the implication is that in the pronouncement of the blessing, when the high priest pronounces the blessing, he's pronouncing Yahweh's name over the people. And he's, in effect, conferring God's name on them Mm. as if they're receiving a Mm. brand or a tattoo saying, I belong to Yahweh, just like the high priest's medallion that says, holy belonging to Yahweh. What's true of the high priest is true of all of them. Israel bears God's name. And as we've already connected this treasured possession, kingdom of priests, that language is used of the church not just of Israel. Mm. Peter applies these titles to the church, and that implies to me that I too bear God's Mm. name and that I have a responsibility to represent him among the nations. Our conversation in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, helping us better understand what it really means to bear God's name. And that was helpful to see how the third of the Ten Commandments is way broader than just our speech in taking the Lord's name in vain. That command is really about bearing God's name. Well, we've been in the Old Testament up to this point, but uh, next we're going to shift over to the New Testament, and we're going to find this idea of bearing God's name in the Lord's Prayer. And so let's listen as Carmen begins this segment of the conversation by talking about wearing the jersey. All right, well, we've been having so much fun talking about Old Testament law and how it connects with the church and how Israel's been set apart by God to bear his name. And I thought we would start with an illustration that I think kind of captures what's happening with bearing God's name. So I'm a college professor and a lot of my students are athletes. Hmm. And imagine if my Biola students, let's say the water polo team, is playing an away game at Concordia. And let's say that they are just scrappy when they're playing. They Mm. trash talk the ref, they're beating on the other team, they're really rough in the water. And let's say when they get out of the pool, adults have to come and separate them from the other team because they're just shoving each other around Mm. and they're, they're yelling and using foul language. 
if all that's happening while they're wearing their jerseys for Biola University, they're representing our school as they wear those jerseys. It doesn't just reflect on them personally. When an athlete misbehaves, you don't just say, oh, that athlete is hot-headed. You start to think about, oh, what's going on at Biola University? Mm -hmm. Like, what's wrong with these people? Why are they not being sportsmanlike? And for the record, I have no real story to attach this to. <laughs> Biola students are incredibly kind and sweet and thoughtful. And what the neighbors tell me is that, oh, you can always tell Biola students when you run into them at the store mm. because they're so sweet. But if they were wearing their Biola swag <laughs> and being jerks at the store, then the neighbors would have a different impression. Totally. And I think this is worth us thinking about the idea that we bear God's name is kind of like wearing a team jersey, that people are watching us to find out what God is like, and everything we do and wherever we go, we're representing God. And so today I want to transition our story into exploring Jesus, and what's Jesus' relationship to the name of God and to bearing God's name. And I think a great entry point for that is the Lord's Prayer. So, Daniel, could you read for us from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13? And I want you to listen as Daniel reads for where is the name of God in this prayer? Jesus says, pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. The Lord's Prayer is so familiar. We've heard it so many times. And I have to say, when I was growing up, it always puzzled me that Jesus asked his disciples to say, hallowed be your name. (laughs) I knew that hallowed meant holy, and I couldn't figure out why somebody would need to pray that God's name would be holy. Because isn't God already holy? Like, so is this saying, God, your name is already holy? (laughs) In which case, why say it? Mm -hmm. What's the purpose of this? And I've become convinced that this is part of his petition. He's not just saying your name is holy, but may your name be made holy. And for Jesus, this is a significant statement. It's a recognition that Mm -hmm. as the people who bear God's name throughout history the Israelites have not always represented God well. And the risk that God takes in attaching his name to his people is such that if his people don't live well, if they're unfaithful to the covenant, then his name will be sullied or brought into disrepute. You know, if we've read the Old Testament prophets, we find out, wow, they're engaging in all kinds of behavior that does not befit those who bear God's name. And so the prophet Ezekiel is where this, I think, is the clearest. Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel Mm. addresses the people as those who've gone into exile, and he says, you've profaned my name among the nations. Hmm. And so there's a sense in which Israel's unfaithfulness and the subsequent exile, that's the consequence for that, is a PR problem for God. Because now it looks like God's not powerful enough to protect his people. Yeah, and it also reminds me of the other, I guess, odious element to when people who are attached 
to God by name don't represent him is it inevitably mm-hmm. prompts people to believe that that's what God is like because this is what those mm-hmm. who identify themselves with him are like. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, you yeah. know, I think that risk and that reality of our identity and our name being tied to God's name or God's name being tied to ours does seem to be inescapable reality to the point where that's part of the reason why the exile has to happen because I can't have this temple and this place and and all of these things that are pointing to me being represented by the same injustices, the same Mm -hmm. greed, the same blasphemies that the nations are because now you can't be that example to the world that I intended you to be. It's actually being the opposite. Right. Yeah, when God rescues Israel from Egypt, he tells them they need to live differently. And that if they become like the Egyptians in that if they worship false gods and if they oppress other people, then the diseases that came upon Egypt will come upon them. They will be subject to the same kind of judgment that he had to pour out on Egypt. And they don't get just a blank check to do whatever they want. You can just trace this with your finger through the entire story in the Bible. And then come on, bring it on forward to today. I was on an airplane um, not long ago, and uh, the man in front of me got up as we were deplaning, and I noticed he was carrying a book with its cover out from his body, and it said, Be Like Jesus. And I went, oh, well, that's kind of cool. And three seconds later, he was elbowing his way into the front of the crowd to, to, to get his bag. And I was like, that's not cool. And of course, the, the Lord kind of, you know, helped me go, well, Lisa, you know, what's in your heart? And you're probably not any better. But, the, you know, that's, it, it's just 24-7, you know, yes. that we do represent our faith and we do it uh, inaccurately most yeah. of the time. And this brings us, if we circle back to the Lord's Prayer, I actually think that Jesus understands what it means to be a name bearer and that his prayer is actually intentionally committing himself to honoring God's name. He wants with his own life to set things right again and to bring honor to God's name again. He wants to show us what it looks like to bear God's name well. And so he's committing himself to that in prayer and modeling that we should also do the same. I want to ask something that might be a bit controversial, but it seems like the idea of bearing God's name that you're presenting is not just a matter of, I guess you could say, assent or of what one believes or what one mm-hmm. thinks in their mind as right. their identity, but it is right. linked with one's ethics and one's behavior yes and that feels different than the way that i think oftentimes i can hear people identify what is the bottom line of what makes them bear the name of god and that is ultimately the sense of do i believe Mm -hmm. or do i ascribe that name to myself could you draw out what might be different here because in the prayer if we're to read this, and I agree with you that it's hollow would be your name, your kingdom come and your will be done, isn't just for God to just kind of miraculously and magically make it appear, but it's also a request and a, and a commitment to align myself mm-hmm. to those yes. desires and to that agenda. Mm-hmm. Then how might that impact the way that I see what is necessary for me to even bear that name? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Oh, so well said. I think we often as Christians talk about faith as being personal and private and a matter of mental assent. So if I can check all the doctrinal boxes, I believe Jesus is God. I believe he died on the cross for my sin. I believe he rose again. I believe I'm going to heaven. Then then I'm good. But I don't see the Bible presenting Christianity as a list of propositions that I must assent to, but it's a way of life Mm. that I'm invited into. Mm. It's a family that I'm joining. And even the rest of the Lord's Prayer, we can see this. Give us this day Mm. our daily bread. Justo Gonzalez has a book called Teach Us to Pray, where he notes that if I'm praying for our daily bread, and if I personally have more bread than I need for a day, then it's part of my responsibility to share that with the others among us that I've just prayed for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not just about me and my needs. It's about us and our needs. It's about God's kingdom coming among us. And so going back to the theme of bearing the name, what we're saying at the beginning of this prayer is, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name by the way that I live out and adhere and walk through the things that I'm getting ready to pray after this. Yes, Um, yes. Which is your kingdom come, your will be done, which Jesus just spent a whole bunch of time describing what the kingdom looks like right before this. And so like, Mm -hmm. let all that be true. Yes, (laughs) Um, in me, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep, and then as you talked about the generosity of looking to the needs of others by sharing our daily bread, being a people of forgiveness, and then how we struggle through temptation and trials and trusting in God. But I think the thing that's probably sticking out to me the most is just the reminder too that like, especially after what Lisa, you were describing as the whole Bible kind of points us to God keeps giving us the opportunity to represent his name and we keep Mm -hmm. messing it up. Mm -hmm. And then we get to Jesus who shows up and says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And Mm -hmm. so we finally get this good, perfect representation of what it means to bear the name of God, because we always yeah. fall short of what that looks like. doesn't mean that yeah. we don't have responsibility yeah. to live into it and to try, which yeah. is what this prayer yeah. is about. But there's also that grace that comes with it of Jesus is the only one that ultimately represents God's name in the world. So yeah. I don't think there's really yeah. a question there. It's just those are all the thoughts mm-hmm. that are kind of circulating yeah. as we're mm-hmm. talking no, through this. That's, that's a great way to tie things together. And I think the holiness of God's name is always attached to his reputation. Holiness has to do with being set apart and honored. And so it's always going to be attached to the way God's people who bear his name are living. And this is the risk God took when he chose people to be his representatives. And it's the high calling that we're invited into to be on mission in showing the world what he's like. the jersey that says who we're connected to and the impressions people get of God and his kingdom often come from us and how we're bearing God's name, the name that's on the front of that jersey. Well, we will wrap up this conversation that we're having with Carmen Imes about bearing God's name by having her take us all the way to the last book of the Bible and showing us how this idea shows up in Revelation. And in the passage we'll look at, we'll see that it talks not only about bearing God's name, but also about bearing the mark of the beast. 
But before that last segment, let's take a moment and look ahead to what we'll be doing in our next podcast. Next time on the Discover the Word podcast, Elisa and Daniel and Rasul and Bill Crowder will be at the table to take a closer look at a metaphor that is mentioned throughout the pages of Scripture, that of crowns. Why are crowns so prevalent in Scripture? You know, was it just cultural? Does it have to do with, with God and how He's trying to reveal Himself? What's in it for us? in the conversation of crowns. Yeah, Lisa will be leading these discussions and I think you're gonna be surprised by how often crowns show up and you're gonna be intrigued by the significance of the crowns mentioned in the Old and New Testaments. A study simply called Crowns is what the group will be doing next on the Discover the Word podcast. And now, the conclusion of our conversations with Dr. Carmen Imes about the subject of bearing God's name. All right. Well, I'm curious if any of you had that experience going to a roller skating rink in junior high or high school. And when you get to the rink and you pay your entry fee, they stamp your hand. And you can't see the stamp until you get out on the floor and they turn on the black lights oh, yeah. that makes everything oh, that you're yeah. wearing that's white turns to this glowy purple. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then you can see the stamp on your hand sure. light up. You all have done this, too. Yeah, and it's yeah. in other situations, too, like if you go to a concert or maybe even an amusement mm-hmm. park. or Yeah. And yeah. it occurs to me that this is precisely what's going on in the book of Revelation, So we've been talking about how the people of God bear God's name and that it's kind of like an invisible tattoo or brand. Mm -hmm. But then we get to the book of Revelation and all of a sudden the invisibility factor is gone and we can see the marks that people are wearing. And so what I want to do is start with a passage in Revelation that's probably struck fear into a lot of people talking about the mark of the beast, but I want to connect that with what immediately follows it and then tease out what might be going on here in John's vision. Rasul, do you want to read for us Revelation chapter 13, verse 15, and then all the way to chapter 14, verse 3? Sure. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, 
And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. All right. So these are two passages that have sparked all kinds of speculation and controversy. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're old enough, you've seen lots of different possible interpretations cycle through. What is the mark of the beast? Who are the 144,000? What group of people does that constitute? And what I'm hoping is that our conversation leading up to this about the people of God bearing his name will help reframe the way we read this and hear this so that we can see this is not some new thing. This is something we could trace through the entire biblical canon, that the people of God bear his name, and that an alternative to that is that the people who are allied with the world system then bear the mark of that system. And so we're all walking around with an invisible tattoo. And somehow in John's vision, they turn on the UV light <laughs> and it unveils. The word revelation comes from the Greek apocalypsis, which means unveiling. Yeah. There's this moment of unveiling, this moment of revealing what's actually true. And what's actually true is that most of the world is allied to the beast's system, the beastly opposition to God, and yet there is this group reserved of those who bear God's name. Yeah, that's helpful. I think it's also just freeing to acknowledge how confusing this passage is, mm -hmm. especially when you dive in right in the middle, like where mm -hmm. Rasul started reading of like a, a breath breathing on another. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, what is happening? Yeah, right? I wasn't sure where to drop us no, into I thought that, that was, passage because, you know, yeah. Yeah, one of the problems that we have with the book of Revelation is that we don't have a genre today that is quite like it. But the apocalyptic genre, I'm convinced that the closest we come to it is political cartoons. Huh. With a political cartoon, you have animals, you have certain colors, certain symbols that are conventional to use to represent hmm. different realities. And if you're in the know, you know that that elephant means Republican, that donkey means Democrat. You know that that guy with the funky hat is Uncle Sam and he represents the United States. You don't have to be told. It doesn't have to come with labels because the symbols are conventionalized. But we don't have a glossary of these conventional symbols that come up in Revelation. And apocalyptic literature traffics in symbols in a similar way. So we don't have to be worried about an actual beast coming up out of the sea or about an actual mark of that beast. These are symbolic ways of talking about worldly systems and power. And if we immerse ourselves in the book of Daniel and Revelation, we can see those symbols cycling through again and again. The thing I thought was interesting is it said, this takes wisdom. Like the text itself yeah. tells you, this is hard to yes. understand. <laughs> yes. I think there's a lot of fear surrounding the books of Daniel and Revelation because we worry like, I don't want to accidentally get the mark of the beast. Like, what is it? Is it a chip implanted in my skin, under my skin? Is it a credit card that I carry around? Is it is it a vaccine? And people are so worried about accidentally buying into the world system 
And I hope to just reassure people that the mark of the beast is not something you can accidentally get. It comes by showing allegiance to the world system instead of to Mm. Yahweh as king. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus and you are trying to follow Jesus and be his church in the world, you're not going to accidentally get the mark of the beast. The name that you bear is God's name, and that's going to be unveiled Mm -hmm. in the end. You know, Carmen, I'm resonating with the thread of your conversations that we've been having. And and one is that you talked about bearing the name of God, carrying it. And there's an intentionality. Yeah. I mean, yes, mm-hmm. God invites us and puts his imprimatur on us of his name, if you will. But there's also this volitional choice to pick it up, to claim mm-hmm. it for ourselves, to intentionally become involved, to respond to an invitation. Yeah. And that's a conscious you know, understanding of what's been offered to us. And, and to, yeah. I think that's very freeing that it, the boogeyman out there is not going to just nab us mm-hmm. and you know, get us. You know, we, we choose to pick up and bear God's identity yeah. as our own. Yeah. And Rasul was talking in a previous segment about how this kind of takes faith out of the realm of just being doctrines that we assent to mentally. Like, these are things I believe, but this is the way I live. And the way I like to think about faith is believing loyalty. Like, what we believe results in allegiance Mm. or loyalty to Yahweh as king. Mm. And every human is loyal to someone. Mm. And it's when we're under pressure that we find out where our true loyalties lie. And so what gets unveiled in the book of Revelation is whether we are loyal to this world system or whether we're loyal to the God who created us and redeemed us and gave us this new identity. Uh, And I think what you're saying helps bring a lot of clarity to the fact that it's not as much a mark on a skin or a forehead as it is who are we living for and and who are we following and who is our God and who are we serving? And I liked too, the way you described loyalty as a part of that too, because then that helps us with all the times that we make mistakes and start following the wrong direction because Mm -hmm. that happens too. Yeah, You know, we do in some ways all wear the marks of Mm -hmm. false gods Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet it's this like general direction of our lives. Are we following this God and trusting him? Are we bearing his name in in that way? And that's really helpful and freeing too, I think. Yeah. Could you help me with something? I think about when you say we're all loyal to someone and it made me think about when I think about the head and the, the forehead on the mark or the right hand and in Deuteronomy 6, God instructs the people that the the law shall be like a sign on your mm-hmm. hand or frontlets yes. between your eyes, right? So there's yeah, this, yeah. this other type of mark that the folks were to bear as they prayed and engaged with God. But on the one end, I feel comforted by the fact that I can't accidentally take mm-hmm. the mark. Mm-hmm. But on the other, I'm wondering what is then the exhortation to me about Mm. how I should take this passage and apply it so that it's not just a sense of relief in my head, but it's also helping me today think about Mm -hmm. what does it mean to take intentionally God's name versus whatever the mark of the beast is. Sure. It means all the things that 
the New Testament and the Old Testament writers tell us about what it looks like to follow God. It's all the ways that we love our neighbors and that we love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so I can't boil it down to just one thing. But I think what I want maybe to leave people with is the idea that our obedience matters, our following God matters because we're on mission. So rather than thinking of ourselves as individuals who have made a private decision to follow Jesus, when we give our lives to Christ, we are entering into a larger family and we're on mission together And so, yes, we mess up sometimes, and the grace of God is available for that. Christ pays for our sin. It's not as though we're earning our salvation. We've already been saved Mm -hmm. by grace. But the way we live, our obedience is not that earning of salvation, but it's our living out our mission, living out our identity and vocation as God's people. So I think practically, we could circle back to that old uh, cliche, what would Jesus do? Mm -hmm. And we could say, this is a good model for us to think in every situation of my life, how would Jesus live? What would Jesus act like in this situation? Mm -hmm. And recognize that it's not just incidental, like it doesn't really matter what I do, it's inconsequential, but it does matter because we're on mission. And we're bearing his name. Yes. Yeah, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you have an invisible tattoo. You bear the name of God and it seals your identity as someone who belongs to God. And it defines your vocation as God's representative. So our conformity to Christ matters because it demonstrates to a watching world who God is and what he's called people to be and do. Such an important concept, isn't it, that we see throughout Scripture, often in some surprising places and some surprising ways. We bear God's name. So much comfort and security in knowing that, at the same time, so much responsibility as well. Thank you, Carmen, for helping us see that. Well, it has been great to have our special guest, Dr. Carmen Imes, at the table with us for this discussion. Uh, There with her were your regular study partners, Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry, for this series titled Bearing God's Name. And don't forget that Carmen has written a book on this subject as well. It's called Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. And I'd encourage you to check into getting a copy. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Well, helping others connect with the scriptures is a central part of our mission to love God and love others. And we pray these conversations will help you to make sense of scripture and learn how to apply it to your life. And so if you've benefited from this small group Bible study or any of the other Our Daily Bread Ministries resources we provide, then would you help us by donating to Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries? We're so grateful for the faithful financial support from friends like you. So please do partner with us today when you go online to discovertheword.org and click donate. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.